You are listening to the Pragmatic Christian Podcast with your host, Hayden Bruce. What's up, everyone? I hope you're all staying safe and washing your hands. Six feet apart, please. The next couple of episodes I'm releasing were recorded several months ago, so there won't be any mention of COVID-19 and the crazy mess we're living in right now. Uh, But maybe it'll be nice to go back to uh, simpler times when we were free to leave our houses and hug our friends and family. Well, speaking of friends, uh, you're about to hear an interview with my good friend Jeffrey Howard. Uh, Jeff is the founder and editor-in-chief of Eradicus, which is an online publication that takes a pragmatic approach to ideas. We talk a little bit about um, how we met um, through Twitter, actually, uh, and how we've become friends. Um, But I would definitely go check out Eradicus. Um, Clearly, I'm someone who's interested in pragmatism and um, a pragmatic approach to ideas. Um, So when I found Eradicus, uh, I was really excited. you know, that there's an institution like that, uh, that's, you know, taking pragmatic ideas seriously. So definitely go check that out. Uh, check Jeff out. You can uh, find him on Twitter. I'll have links, uh, to some of his work in the show notes. Um, before we get into the interview, um, if you would like to help support the show, you can go over to where that, wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. You can uh, rate and review us. You can share the podcast with your friends. And if you have some extra money lying around, which I doubt during these trying times, uh, you can go over to Patreon and donate there. That would really help me out. Um, and if you want to reach out, you can find us on Twitter at Pragmatic Christ, or you can follow me at Hayden S. Bruce. I always welcome um, anyone who wants to reach out and talk to me. You can also go over to the contact page on the website, pragmaticchristian.com, and email us through the contact page. I always welcome uh, comments, critiques, uh, you know, if you just want to send encouragement, I always appreciate that. I like to keep the conversation going. Um, So you can go there. I'll have links in the show notes to everything. So um, let's jump into my conversation with my friend Jeff Howard. We started talking probably sometime within 2019, right? Yeah, it was, it was the beginning. It was I had come back onto Twitter after you know a lot of people to hop on Twitter don't know what to do and they leave and then they come back another time leave. And this is my third time on Twitter. It's like as an extension of the work I'm doing with Radicus, I was like I really need to be in the space. I don't know why I haven't been doing this before. And so as I was on there, I started reaching out, trying to find anyone remotely connected to pragmatism. And yeah. so I just did a search for pragmatism and uh, your podcast came up and we connected. And I think we started interacting a little bit back and forth, similar interests, et cetera, et cetera. And here we are, yeah, a year later. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty wild. I When I came across your website, um, the online publication Eradicus, I was super interested because the reason, one of the reasons why I started the podcast um, was, well, first of all, I was going through my own faith journey, um, which the audience, as well as you already know, uh, deconstructing things. I came across pragmatism at, at one point, and it really helped give me a vocabulary for walking through some of those issues. Um, but then the podcast started to kind of take on like a whole new uh, life of its own, uh, discussing right. pragmatism specifically. And I started connecting with um, different philosophers and pragmatist scholars, which has been pretty wild. The show has been evolving um, from the conception of what I started with. I always thought it would just be a show for progressive Christians, questioning things, deconstructing things. And now it's it's taken on this 
philosophical bent, um, which has been super interesting. But when I came across your website and realized that, um, you know, reading the about page and reading that you guys specifically are trying to publish um, pragmatic ideas and that you are coming, you know, consciously from that space. I was super interested because like I began with this diatribe, I started the podcast because there wasn't a lot of pragmatist voices out there um it, mm-hmm. it you know in philosophical circles it still is even though it is a major philosophical you know school's not really the right word for it but um possible movement it's still relatively new a little over 100 years old but um pragmatists are kind of pushed to the side a little bit by mainstream philosophy mm-hmm. and so even within philosophy itself it's not a mainstream view and without, you know, in non-pragmatist circles, some people know the name John Dewey. A lot of people know William James for his work in, in psychology, but there's not a lot of popular, um, you know, public areas where pragmatist ideas are being discussed. Usually, you know, on some websites, some like intellectual, like online publications like Eraticus, you'll you'll get like a pragmatist article like once every year, maybe. Um, mm. And usually people are, you know, you hear pragmatism a lot in the news, but it's a completely different kind of understanding. It's the colloquial understanding of pragmatism where you just do what works. You know, the, um, mm-hmm. Frank, the Frank Underwood, you know, conception of pragmatism. <laughs> and that's definitely not what I'm talking about. Uh, Donald Trump often gets called a pragmatist. He's just doing whatever it takes to get the deal done. And so, you know, one of the conscious um, uh, reasons why I started the show was to give pragmatists, uh, pragmatism a better name, you know, in public to, you know, have a space where those ideas can flourish. And so when I went out on the internet before I ever started the podcast, I looked everywhere and no one else was doing that. There was no popular area, no podcast, no mm-hmm. website that I could find that was, you know, really trying to engage with pragmatist ideas in a popular or cultural way. And then all of a sudden you, I think you may have followed me first, but I came across the website and I was like, oh, wow, this is super interesting. I got to meet this guy. And since then we've become friends um, and, you know, we're working on things in the future, but Mm -hmm. um, I just wanted to meet you and I'm glad that we can finally talk. (laughs) I wanted to have you on the podcast for a while. So uh, I want to get to how you started Eraticus and what led you there, but maybe we can just back up. Um, Where did you grow up? I know you've moved around a lot. Where'd you, uh, where'd you start off? Yeah, so I am a child of the West, grew up in California and Utah, um, grew up in a very strong faith tradition, um, which is in a way how uh, pragmatism is pretty niche. I grew up in a very niche faith tradition, that of Mormonism, which has all sorts of interesting questions and perspectives. And that's uh, my family's been Mormon on both sides of my family going back to the early 1800s. So it's a very big part of who I am. Um, similar to how pragmatism is the sort of quintessential American philosophy. Uh, Mormonism has been considered the quintessential American religion. Harold Bloom, the sociologist, that's kind of how he referred to Mormonism for a variety of reasons. And so that's kind of where I, I ground I came up in. And then, you know, in college, I studied psychology and philosophy. That's sort of my founding. Those are some of the touch points that maybe you and I can relate with in regards to faith transitions. For me, mine happened. I mean, kind of over a decade and a half, but really in my mid twenties. Um, but yeah, we, which direction would you like to go? Yeah, well, we can stick with the Mormonism. So, 
you said that that faith goes back in your family. Um, were you like a devout Mormon at, at one point? How have you developed um, or how are you thinking about faith now? And how has that changed since um, since you started off? Yeah, so I was, I would say from early age until mid-20s, I was very, very believing, very devout and practicing, um, you know, really fit a lot of the, what is considered a good Mormon, you know, in a lot of youth leadership roles and being knowledgeable about scripture and related church history and all those things. Um, and it was when I was around 19 is when I had my first, first faith crisis, um, and this was and I don't know if any of your listeners know, but Mormons, a lot of them, when they turn about 18 or 19, they'll go on a mission. Usually for women, it's a year and a half. For men, it's two years. Um, you voluntarily go. You're actually paying to be out there, and you're you're assigned to a different part of the world. I was going to go to Portugal. Before going out there, I was in the missionary training center for a couple months, learning Portuguese, doing gospel study, all that stuff, preparing. And it was during my time in there, just before going, that I started to experience a lot of anxiety and depression that manifest as um, sort of OCD in the form of obsession over moral cleanliness, the, the psychological term is scrupulosity. And so I was facing all of that and within, after two months in the training center, just a couple days before shipping out to Portugal, after having lost 25 plus pounds, because I was just like, kind of in my own personal hell around the whole thing, I was like, I felt like I should be getting divine help. I felt like I should, of all the places, I should be feeling the most spiritually fed and all these things. And in those moments, I had never felt more um, away from God, more in the darkness. And I remember there'd be nights where I'd be praying for hours and hours, feeling like those prayers are just hitting the ceiling. Whereas I spent most of my life being able to have pretty routine spiritual or ecstatic experiences. And then suddenly they were gone in that moment I needed the most. And so suddenly my faith was not working. It's like, I don't understand. Um, it just reinforced this idea that I was this awful, unworthy person. And so that's when I met with the clinical professional in the training center. He mentioned, hey, you may have, he sort of broached the subject, sort of like, hey, by the way, here's this term, you may have OCD or depression. And I was like, no, that's what other people have. That's what happens to other people. Um, but yeah, came home, tried to figure things out. And, you know, that was sort of that faith crisis of my faith came crashing down. I didn't know what to do anymore. Um, almost took my life during that time. And then, you know, after a few months, I started getting a bit more stabilized and I spent the next several years sort of picking up my faith and restructuring in a way that worked and seemed to make sense. And it was a lot more nuanced than before. You know, I really had to find ways to reconcile some inconsistencies, to make sense of that very difficult experience, and then sort of, you know, wrestling on and off with the uh, the mental health questions. And th those things, I think, spurred me toward philosophy because it was like suddenly I don't know anything, and I really needed to dig in deeper, and I just had this deep thirst for knowledge, and that's when I dug deeper into psychology and philosophy, trying to understand myself and the world and all these things. And then fast forward several more years, and – as my study of Mormon history in particular, which um, those who I think are really well read in it will understand there's a lot of different narratives and the official narrative from the LDS church is very different than what actually happened um, or how it's understood. And so that those issues stacked up higher and higher. And at that same moment, 
the utility of my Mormon faith became less and less relevant, became a yes, less useful toolkit for navigating the challenges of existence. And so that's when I sort of gradually made this shift away. Hmm. Yeah, that's something that I've, I've wanted to specifically um, talk about on the podcast in general, but um, with you as well, is uh, how... It doesn't. I feel like it doesn't get talked enough um, in culture in general. Uh, the effect of a of a faith crisis can have on people. Um, people, you know, people who are outside of or who have either never experienced that or who are outside of like uh, faith traditions in any official way, they don't really understand that it's uh, it can be a horrible process. Sure, there's lots of people mm. who just kind of fade away and are like, yeah, I never really believed it. It's no big deal. But for those who really did believe it and then go through that process, um, I can attest it is an extremely difficult thing. I'm still dealing with the consequences of that six years later, uh, six or eight years later. Um, mm-hmm. And what you were just saying, I can relate to the anxiety, depression. I, uh, I've i told a story once before that my first faith crisis, I was probably maybe eight years old and I was sitting on the toilet. And at that point, I, you know, Chris, uh, it sounded like a precocious <laughs> child having a faith yeah. crisis at age. <laughs> well, well, it didn't feel that way. I, I kind of ignored it ever since, but it's been kind of gnawing in the back of my head. Um, now, you know, ever since I was just sitting on the toilet and all I knew was Christianity and going to church with my family. There was nothing weird about it. And then I was just sitting there uh, going to the bathroom as a little eight year old. And I just had this idea uh, that like and it came out of nowhere. Um, the idea being like, what if um, this whole thing is one big cosmic joke and God is really defeated and devil and the devil is God and he is <laughs> tricking us mm-hmm. into living our lives for him and not having any fun, not drinking, not doing all these different things. And then when we die, he just says, uh, psych. And then we all go to hell anyways. <laughs> like we have no guarantee that that's not how the way it is. And so like, that was my first real fa- like that was probably my first anxiety attack in general was probably that young. And then I just like, I remember it like it was yesterday because I still have those anxiety attacks now where it's like an existential dread. And Mm -hmm. I had never, at that point I had never felt something like that. And so ever since then I struggled with, um, the guilt and everything that you were just talking about doubts and, and, and not living up to the ideal and the, and the scriptures and the, the doctrines of my church. I grew up in a, um, in a Pentecostal church, um, where faith experience, religious experiences, Pentecostal experiences were all very like, you know, not just normal, but encouraged and kind of Mm -hmm. expected. Um, everyone in my church spoke tongues. And so like, that was kind of like a, it was kind of a, a coming of age sort of understanding in, um, that's not the right word, but in in my church where it's like, when you're ready, you know, when, when the time comes, it'll, yeah, I'll write a passage. That's right then Mm -hmm. that'll happen. And so I took that seriously, you know, when I was younger, I was like, I'm not going to fake it, which, you know, I went to a kid's camp, a Christian kid's camp, and I spoke in tongues there, but I knew after the fact that it was fake, that I was, that I was forcing it. I was Mm -hmm. just imitating. And ever since then, I was like, I'm not going to fake it. This isn't going to be something that I fake. It's going to happen that way. I know it's real. So at the back of my head, I was like, I had this like little bit of doubt where it's like, if this is real, this is going to prove it to me because I'm not going to fake it. It's going to happen when it happens. And then uh, in high school, eventually that did happen. And I have my own understandings of why that happened psychologically now. But at the time, 
that was everything. I, I broke up with this girlfriend I had who I didn't feel like was, you know, was godly enough. I, I switched mm-hmm. my life around. And so in high school, which I think that this is a common thing where uh, freshman, sophomore year in high school, that's when people really become I think that's when people really become fundamentalists. I don't know what it is about that time. I'm sure it has mm-hmm. a lot to do with identity formation and, be- and belonging. But from that moment on, I was like, I'm going to be in leadership. I'm going to be, you know, the, you know, as Paul says, the Jew of Jews, I'll be the Christian of Christians. Um, mm-hmm. And so from that moment on, I was just like all in. And then things just started to crumble when I w- went to college to become a, a, a minister uh, and a missionary. And my faith crisis happened within the four years, and it's been an ongoing thing, but my faith crisis happened within those four years when I was preparing to go and spread the gospel. Um, did you mm-hmm. did you consider uh, ministry when you were younger? Like, what was your, what did you think your direction was going to be at, the, at that point? So, Mormonism's interesting that there's a lot of similar terminology and concepts that are borrowed from more mainline Christianity. Um, for example, when I, when... I was 12, I was ordained what in Mormonism is called a deacon, which is definitely very different than what a deacon is elsewhere. Um, but basically, you're, you're, you're kind of in the ministering in the sense of, you know, when you're 12, you start helping, you're kind of like an altar boy. Um, when I was 14, and just there's certain points in which as I'm aging, there's new um, positions of leadership that I enter in that included more leadership that included having a certain number of families in my congregation that I was sort of responsible for and of visiting once a month, sharing gospel messages and just sort of being there as a resource whenever they needed help. You're giving talks in church on Sunday. So that's the thing is once one great benefit of Mormonism that was for me is for a lot of people is you're expected to give talks in front of the congregation in your main sacrament service. Um, And so from age 12 to 18, I was giving a talk in front of a couple hundred of people, kids and adults um, you know, a couple times a year. And so by the time I'm 16, 17, I'm already encouraged to have sort of missionary experiences where you're trying to share the gospel with people, talk with them, sort of get to these deeper existential questions of like, you know, where do we go when we die? And, you know, how do you know what the good life is and all those things? And so I was already doing that. And being a missionary at age 18, that's, I mean, in a way that's going into the ministry of your full time as a Mormon missionary you are studying, teaching, preaching the gospel. You're helping people. You are abstaining from not only like the Orthodox Mormon things of, you know, no premarital, extramarital sex, no smoking, no drinking alcohol, all those things. But you're also – you're disconnected from your family. You only have maybe a few phone calls with them a year. Otherwise, it's, you have letters and emails. And so it, it was – it's a pretty intense experience in that way. And I was an ordained minister. Like I was able to marry people if I – you know, and all that stuff. So in that sense, I was on that path. And I, I presumed kind of like you talked about of expecting that I would be in positions of leadership where I would be serving in a lot of capacities and helping people in this very way toward God. And that's what I expected. Um, in Mormonism, there's, we have seminary, but it's a bit different than what a lot of other traditions have a seminary where like you go and you study theology and history for a few years and become a minister Seminary is something you start out attending every morning once you enter about ninth grade. And so if you don't live in Utah, where in Utah there's so many Mormons that you can get a break from school middle of the day and you go for an hour for seminary every day. Elsewhere, 
kids are getting up at like 6, 6.30 to do prayer and gospel study for an hour before going off to school. And you do seminar, you do that for four years. And so I was already doing that as well. And I did consider becoming a seminary teacher, which, you know, I would have done some extra training. Um, in college, I went to Brigham Young University church school, formerly affiliated with the LDS church. And I did consider becoming a seminary teacher, which is kind of as close as you get to being a minister in the LDS church, because there's Mormons, they don't have, um, they have lay clergy. We don't have seminaries in the sense of you become sort of a licensed or credentialed master of the word. You know, you're, maybe you're just someone in the congregation and local, um, sort of local leaders come up to you like, hey, we've, We'd like to interview you, and we think we feel called to call you to be a local bishop or et cetera, et cetera. So it was definitely something that was on the table for me, kind of in a similar way as it sounds like for you. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't um, I didn't understand all that before about Mormonism, um, which is – it's interesting. A lot of Christians um, in, in my variety, uh, Pentecostalism or um, – Protestantism, a lot of people are interested in or explore when they start to deconstruct their faith. They start to get interested in uh, Mormonism for that reason, as well as um, I think uh, like Quakerism, because mm-hmm. there's, it sounds like for Mormonism, there's less of a hierarchy. Is that right? So Mormonism is interesting in that there's um, sort of a people of paradox. There's a Mormon scholar, Terrell Givens, has a book called about history of Mormonism called People of Paradox, in which on the one hand, Mormons are very non-hierarchical in that you as an individual, you can receive revelation. And it's not just the sort of Quaker or other traditions of you can have direct communication with God, but there's seems to be this way in which, no, in a way, you can receive revelation for others. So it's this radical democratization of access to God. Mm. And that's – I mean that's where Mormonism started. Mormonism started with you have Joseph Smith, a young boy in upstate New York who allegedly is questioning all these faith traditions. He's in the burned-over district of upstate New York where you have all these different Presbyterians, Methodists, you name it, who are having these Bible revivals. And they're all claiming, we're the true church. We're the true church. We speak for God, all this stuff. And he's like, I don't know. And – Part of the Mormon myth founding is that he as an individual challenged that and went directly to the source and prayed and said, God, you know, forgive me of my sins and, you know, which of these churches should I join and eventually kind of forms its own. So in that sense, Mormonism is very non-hierarchical. But what has happened through the years, as happens with almost any institution, as it becomes more established, it becomes more hierarchical. And so it's to the point in which now, especially amongst um, – former Mormons or post-Mormons, there's a big criticism of the what's considered the corporate church, where it's so corporatized that there's no longer these sort of like local – I mean, they're local congregations, but they don't really have autonomy. They very much – whatever comes from the top it works its way down, mm. and that's how it happens. So you still have a bit of this tension, but it's still actually quite hierarchical. It's just not as um, – well, maybe I mean not as hierarchical or as rigid as say Catholicism is with such tradition, but you still have really what the top says goes, and ultimately that that's kind of how it runs. Yeah, 
That's really interesting. I uh, it's it's something that I've thought about a lot. The idea of the democratization of of faith and religion. I think that every all the best or all the greatest um, religious movements have always started from that place of some kind. You know, some some person, some saint, some scholar, some you know priest comes along and they you know somehow they democratize the faith. Uh, the Reformation with Martin Luther. Mm-hmm. You know, he basically democratized the faith through the Re- uh, Reformation. He he helped translate um, uh, a people's Bible that was in the German language and not just in Latin, mm-hmm. so that the normal common German could read the Bible. Um, even G- the Jesus movement was a de- democratization of faith. And with Paul, you mm-hmm. know, we're not just going to the Jews; we're going to the Gentiles. And so there's, you know, every single greatest movement of the Christian faith, especially, has been one of these kind of movements where it's for more. people. People. It's more inclusive. Uh, my my own tradition coming from Pentecostalism. It started, I believe, in 1914. There was this revival movement where people, you know, all these people spoke in tongues, and it was like we can have the same experiences as the early church. And so there was this movement where we can all hear from God. Um, but then, as you were just saying, here comes structure. Here comes, you know, let's you know, well, we have to keep growing. And so we have to get organized. Now we have schools, Mm -hmm. now we have churches, now we have leaders, now we have, you know, bishops and all these different things. And uh, that always, which at one point that's needed. At one point we need structures. At one point we need organization and we need leaders in that way. But at the same time, that's where a lot of issues come from. Um, William James, he was, you know, somewhere in his writings, he talks about being an enemy of bigness in all forms. (laughs) Like anytime, anytime, Mm -hmm. you know, things get big and, and, you know, imperial things get, you know, well, imperial things get uh, Mm -hmm. messy. He, one of his um, famous writings or anti-imperialist writings was during the, um, the, uh, what, how would you call it? The intervention in the Philippines when we went to the mm-hmm. Philippines and he was just like, this is exactly the problem with bigness in all its forms. Like we need, you know, smaller things. Um, you, how, how do you, um, how do you think about that? You seem like a, someone who is against bigness as well. Are you, how would yeah, you describe yourself? Well, yeah, so two thoughts. One, I want to talk about sort of this point you're uh, bringing up it from a mythological perspective. So in myth, we often talk about there are these trickster figures, and we have these dynamics between order and chaos. And so trickster figures are agents of chaos. They, um, There's a book, uh, Trickster Makes This World by David Lewis Hyde, or Lewis David Hyde. I'm mixing up his name here, but he t- really talks about how figures like Loki, like Mercury slash Hermes, that – they are these beings who are morally ambiguous. They're not immoral or moral. They're, they're amoral. You know, they're operating in the sense of or Prometheus who steals fire from the gods. Right? They are there to challenge the stagnation that comes from bigness. Mm-hmm. They are there to subvert things that have become stagnant that they no longer are vital. And this connects with pragmatism as well as where truth, if it's something that is static and unchanging, it becomes rigid and it is no longer working. There's not a vitality that energizes us. And so you need a trickster to come in and just unsettle and shake that up. Mm-hmm. And you have these cycles, um, institutions that have been able to change or that have changed and have lasted for a long time, they've allowed enough of that chaos to come in to shift it up a little bit. But then you do have that bigness, and that's that bigness looks like maybe to a hierarchical of a church or too large of a church, or it looks like a an oversized state in the sense of you know maybe a federal government is so big and so detached and so bureaucratic 
that there's not a vitality that responds well to the needs of communities. Mm -hmm. And I do, I am a critic of bigness in the sense of, I think a lot of our solutions to our existential and social problems can better be addressed on smaller local scales Mm -hmm. where we are place-based, where we are, we know one another, we really know our landscape, we know our history, we even down to, we know the nuance of the legalisms that fit our small context and we can better navigate those rather than, you know, I live in Seattle, Washington, rather than having like Olympia, the state capital dictating everything that happens in every little town, you limit what impact these distant entities have on your local community because, you know, they don't know all the nuances and their well intentions may end up being disastrous. And that happens with any kind of bigness. So I'm definitely, that's one thing about William James that appeals to me is his anti-imperialism. Yeah. I don't know how much you've dug into the works of um, John Dewey as well, but I was just reading um, some work uh, explaining some of his views on democracy, his view of democracy and politics. He was, he was specifically just, you know, disconcerted or um, unsettled by the two-party system and the mm. way that the politics either just doesn't get anything done or, you know, it's hard to change things for the better. The The common man gets forgotten. We're not really a part of mm-hmm. the, the decision processes. And so his view of democracy is very communitarian. Uh, it's very much based on a village mindset where he's like, to mm-hmm. in order for us to get our needs met and we need to sidestep the two party system and come together in, in free associations, free, mm-hmm. uh, you know, coming together as a community locally and to deal with our problems locally, uh, because the t- we can't rely on the two party system. Uh, you were just mm-hmm. on a, you were just on a podcast recently talking about communitarianism. Do you consider y- mm-hmm. yourself a communitarianism or a communitarian? I, so it, communitarian thought is a, a tradition that's newer to me. It's also kind of a niche political perspective as well. Maybe I'm just drawn to niche things. It's maybe a hipster element to me. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's. I've been more in depth studying it this past year. There's um, the podcast reference, and we talked. We unpacked Patrick Deneen's book, Why Liberalism Failed, which is a fascinating book where it's a communitarian critique of liberalism and how because liberalism has succeeded it has failed in addressing a lot of these issues and that part of that is loss of community this atomization alienation we have all these things this sort of elite institutions that are static and stagnant and not responding to communities and so for myself i would say there's a lot of communitarian thought that i sympathize with um i try to avoid labels i mean labels are helpful heuristics but ultimately, as I think with a lot of the pragmatists or just a lot of philosophers in general, don't like labels. Not that I'm a philosopher, um, but there's a lot that I've sympathized with. And I think from what I've studied, there's a lot that we could gain by taking a more community-focused approach to our problems that this hyper-individualism that is so rampant in North America, most Western democratic countries – is undermining what helps us to live well, helps us to live meaningfully, undermines what helps us to um, come to useful truths, essentially. Yeah, so. yeah for sure. Um, I want to back up just a little bit. 
you're talking about your faith crisis and that you started to um, look for answers. You were exploring philosophy. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm interested in how you came to pragmatism specifically, but um, how did you get into philosophy? I mean, you told us how you got into philosophy through that 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 process, but mm-hmm. you've told me that you were um, that you considered going or you did go to school uh, to learn philosophy. Maybe you could talk a little bit about your your educational journey or your um, philosophical journey. Yeah, there was a, my freshman year of college, so I did freshman year of college and then had that missionary experience and all that stuff, mm-hmm. was gone for a year and came back. Um, my second semester, I I mean, I didn't know what philosophy was. Mm-hmm. My family, you know, you know, we're not the most, we do, we were taught to do well in school, but I would say I did not grow up in a very academic or intellectually inclined context. And so philosophy was not something that was on the radar. Um, I will say when I was like, 11 or 12, I, I was having a sleepover and I went to the library and I was looking at books and I was like, oh, this would be fun to read. I grabbed um, Sigmund Freud's interpretation of dreams, <laughs> which is this like bizarre thing for some 12 year old to get. I was like, oh, this could be something interesting to talk about. And uh, so that was sort of some of my inclinations as when I was young. And it was when I went to college in that second semester, I had an intro to philosophy course. And it was just a way of approaching the world that I loved the idea of deconstructing and challenging ideas mm-hmm. that you rather than just accepting things. And um, and I remember I had this f- philosophy professor who halfway through class, he walked out of class and we were talking about Nietzsche and he comes in. He had taken a marker and drew this mustache, like this Nietzschean mustache all over his face and came in with this outrageous German accent <laughs> And I remember that's just an example of his charisma as a philosophy professor. But like this idea of challenging everything really excited me. I love this idea of having a deeply cherished belief be demolished. And I mean, it's easy for me to say that now. Yeah. When I was in that faith crisis, obviously I was in this sort of hellscape. But there, there are certain things that is really exciting to have those beliefs change. And so that excited me. And when I came back, it was I was taking some philosophy classes. But I was really drawn to psychology, partially because I was wanting to make sense of myself and my experience. You know, there's a joke that people go into psychology because, you know, they want to find out, understand their own madness or that of other people close to them who they love. Excuse me. And so it was for me. So I was going in, yeah, I was learning, but I was trying to figure out on my own, why do I feel the way I do? Why am I responding to all these things? And it was when I had, there are two psychology professors I had who covertly, introduced me to pragmatism so they introduced us to it as a class um with you know william james being father of american psychology um being a religious institution we dug into varieties of religious experience and it wasn't until after college that i realized a lot of these ideas and perspectives that i'm sympathetic to were actually pragmatic and roots that you know one psychology class we had it was a critical theory class or critical theory of psychology, essentially, in which we were looking at people's research and their ideas. And our our job was to find their underlying assumptions that they didn't state at the forefront. So the idea was like, look, people make all these claims to truth and facts in the fields of psychology, but they don't realize the assumptions that their claims are built on, like whether they, they are asserting free will or determinism or indeterminism whether they have this view that truth is universal and unchanging 
or whether it's temporal or contextual and all these things. And so we would go through, and I love this exercise, which is challenging. It was like, okay, here's this research paper. Now I want you to go through and find an example in which you can identify what this person's philosophical assumption is. Do they believe that, um, you know, there's free will or not and all these things. And so that's where I really got excited. And that's where I started to see years after college that these two professors were very much pragmatists. They weren't as overt about it. Um, but that's really what got me. And it was when I, years later, when I started Eradicus, it comes back to pragmatism. When I started, I didn't even realize I was trying to build it off of a foundation of pragmatic ideas or pragmatic perspectives. It's just like, what are the, what are ideas and core views that are very dear to me that I could write about? And I realized, I was like, well, you know, I reject the correspondence theory of truth, more or less. I have disagreements with the over-technicalization of philosophy as William James and a lot of the pragmatists did. I really focused on what works and that there's a lot of wasted energy and time in metaphysics and these sort of abstract approaches to everything that's just like we need to keep it in an embodied in-person um, way and so it just going down the list I realized after the fact that all these things were very much pragmatic in their foundation yeah yeah when I I remember um before I really knew what philosophy was and for a lot of people who came from like a faith background, like for me, I thought C.S. Lewis was like the paramount philosopher. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, oh, yeah. for me, philosophy was, a was apologetics, you know, mm-hmm. um, there's a, there's a, there's one, um, uh, there's one guy who does apologetics and who debates, you know, the new atheists and stuff. John Lennox, he was like my hero. That's what I thought philosophy was. I thought that it was, Christians defending the faith mm-hmm. uh, in in various ways, and then everything else was basically um, undermining, you know, s- truth based in scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it wasn't until I, you know, I went through my f- own faith crisis where I started looking for answers anywhere because I was like, none of this makes sense. All these defenses of the faith don't make sense. Um, so I'm going to have to look elsewhere to see what I can find. And originally, you know, I started off reading, uh, Leo Tolstoy's, uh, my confessions and, mm-hmm. um, and, and various, um, existential writings, um, because I went through my own, you know, depression and trying to deal with that. But eventually I came around to, you know, coming across pragmatism and I had come across it and then kind of was like, I'll put that on the shelf. I'll come back to that. And then, and then Jordan Peterson started blowing up as a figure. I heard him on, uh, on Joe Rogan and I was mm-hmm. listening to some of his lectures. And at, at one talk, I don't know if it was a lecture or a talk, but he mentions pragmatism um, and that, you know, he considers himself a pragmatist as far as like truth and his view of truth is pragmatist. Now, after, you know, a couple of years later, I understand that his understanding of pragmatism is a little limited, but um, that mm-hmm. was that was yeah. super interesting to me because I was just looking for answers. And Jordan Peterson, you know, say what you want about him. I, def- I definitely have my own criticisms of him as well. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, he appeals to an audience who is looking for answers when nothing else makes sense. And I mean, he clearly has that effect. Look at his following. And mm-hmm. he certainly helped me in that in that period. But it definitely turned me on to pragmatism. And then, you know, I started reading the works of William James and I, you know, I, from my own, um, my own background in, in 
in college, I took a bunch of hermeneutics classes. So if I want to interpret the text, I need to do all this background work. I need to learn, you know, I started reading a bunch of secondary literature before I even attempted to read the primary sources. Um, I tried to get back, you Mm -hmm. know, historical background, all the different stuff. And so when I started to learn about the history and the life of William James, I just really, um, he really appealed to me. And I felt like a kinship with him, even though I never, you know, even though I never knew him, he went through his own crisis of faith mm-hmm. in free will and all these different things. There's this, you know, famous story in his life where he, he, he wanted to commit suicide for a long time. There was like a year of his life and probably throughout his life, actually, he had these kind of crises um, because he, he was prone to depression and he had health issues as well. But I really felt a kinship with him. And so from then on, you know, for the last four years probably I have just been digging into the pragmatist writings and the pragmatist scholarship and I've found it extremely helpful to talk about issues of of faith what can we know what can't we know is that even a relevant question um what's more important what we know intellectually or what we do with our lives how our beliefs play out in our lives and you were just talking about embodiment um John Dewey criticizes you know the correspondence theory of truth and so many other philosophies as spectator philosophies and Mm -hmm. so making the pragmatist turn like you suggested means that you're taking an agent's point of view someone who's actually in the fight who's actually living Mm -hmm. uh these ideas out and so I appreciate that from um Eradicus uh maybe we could talk about how where that idea came from we know that it was inspired by pragmatist thinking like you just said Mm -hmm. but um where did you get the audacity to start uh an online publication yeah, it comes from uh, a place of chastising myself, I think, because <laughs> um, the criticisms I like to lob out into the world are ones I have toward myself, my own inclinations. So as someone who reads a lot and consumes a lot of content, I realize I need to be in that fight. As you said, I need to be engaging and doing things. I can't just sit in my armchair and think and consume stuff. What's the point of that? And so... I realized I really needed to really kick it in gear and do more writing. And I thought, well, what what am I going to write about? And that's where, again, like I mentioned, all these ideas I put to paper of what would be the core of things I could explore. And then I thought, you know, I don't want to do a blog. Like I don't read blogs. You know, I think it's sound advice to write about or write what you like to read. And that's what I kind of came up with. And so it really was a challenge to get me to create. It was a challenge to bring in others I mean, I think you've talked about this yourself of wanting to create a community of inquirers, and that's not the term I would have used at the time, but wanting to create a community of people who want to engage with ideas and find ideas that are useful. And I myself, as someone who loves the life of mind, I love ideas. It's easy for me to get caught up in the abstractions and just be in the sky. Yeah. Um, I have people close to me who help keep me grounded and challenge that. Um, but I wanted to write about ideas but in a way that hopefully brings them back to how does this help me live well? How does this help me address this specific problem in my community or in my family? And that was really how I um, framed it all. And that's the approach I went from there. I started enlisting uh, other friends and acquaintances to write. I was working in D.C. at the time in the nonprofit world. So there were plenty of very intelligent, capable people who were around I found someone who happened to be interested in pragmatism as well, um, even though that wasn't quite the focus at the time explicitly. And that's kind of how it grew out. And so that's, although that's the foundation of Eradicus, we 
explore ideas in general. It's just wanting to get pragmatic perspectives out there more than people know because it is still a pretty niche tradition or movement, if you will. And I think it's very helpful to address a lot of the problems we face socially, whether that's on the political landscape of too much bigness or the challenge of the um, the issues of tribalism or the polarization or the lack of proper discourse to then problem solve. All these issues that I see um, in the world, I think pragmatic approaches can really offer a method to resolve a lot of them or ameliorate them. So, mm. um, how much, uh, uh, how much of a background do you have in writing or journalism? Did you ever consider a path in journalism before starting Eradicus? Uh, you know, there's, I think a lot of us are hindered by our upbringings of what is available as a professional path. And so I didn't know any writers or journalists. Um, I actually planned to be a teacher, which I was a teacher high school, middle school, briefly for a couple of years. Um, a lot of my family members were teachers. So that's often what happened. So I didn't have examples to look to, to help mentor and guide me there. And so it wasn't something I really entertained when I was younger. I thought about going into film. I always admired writers, um, not gen journalists per se, but just writers. Cause they seem to be these, um, sort of secular prophets in a way. There's just, they seem to tap into this deep well of wisdom and truth that other people often don't. And so I've always admired them, but I didn't have those mentors to look to. And it wasn't until when I was in, you know, near the end of college, I was a writing tutor. Um, and I was uh, briefly helped, uh, on the publishing team for our undergraduate journal psychology. So I had some experience there. Um, but it wasn't until it was just practice, you know, writing and writing, and I got into marketing in the nonprofit world when I was in D.C. So I was again, I was around a lot of very capable writers and people that then I could start connecting with and really got some confidence of, yeah, I can do this. Whereas like I'm, I'm on the same in the same circles with a lot of these people who are journalists in D.C. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to push myself and I can get to do some of the things they're doing. Hmm. What were you doing in D.C.? What were you doing in the nonprofit world? So I was doing uh, market is mostly marketing communications. It was an, an educational nonprofit focused on it was sort of halfway in academia and halfway in the nonprofit world of trying to explore the ideas of what a free society is, what it looks like. And so that included a lot of philosophy, political philosophy, economics, sociology, history, you name it. And it was really kind of exploring that. So it was ultimately that stuff eventually gets out to um, policymakers and decision makers, but really a lot of it's like, let's figure out answers to these questions. And so I think, you know, Dewey came up a bit in there. Um, but yeah, I was kind of in that space of trying to work with academics to, uh, you know, in a way, pull them away from their ivory tower to help them show social change starts large, a lot of it starts with ideas and then it grows out from there and so I, I didn't want to be a politician i didn't want to be an activist it's still not my nature i love ideas and i like um having them empower others to make the changes that they need to do 
as I learn more and more about your background, it sounds like you've done a little bit of everything. Like it sounds like there's not really an area where, where you haven't dipped your toes in. Is that a restlessness or are you just, <laughs> is it curiosity? I, I, I'm not sure. I think there's a restlessness. I like to say I have a, an itchy bone marrow for better, or for worse. It's uh, I'm, I'm a generalist and maybe that's, I think, some of us, we call ourselves generalists because we're not good enough to be specialists. I don't know how much truth there is to that, but this is part of why pragmatism appeals to me and is we are in society that, you know, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse, that encourages specialization, that everything needs to be specialized. And this, you know, from an economics perspective, that has brought about a lot of prosperity. But the problem with specialization is you get over technical and you get this isolation from the local from the community and as well as I'm, I'm just more of a generalist. Like I know I'm not going to be so obsessed about a given thing that I could become an extreme expert, a specialist in one thing. Like I lose interest or I get pulled into something else. Like I'm, I can't get that obsessive about one thing. So I think it's, I've tried a lot of different things because I've really had this restlessness. I'm curious and you know, you could call it a low intention span. I'm not sure, but it's just, I want to understand a lot of things, and that's why I'm drawn to philosophies because philosophies seem like a discipline that is as general as you can get because it's the it's the fertile ground from which every discipline grows out of, um, right? Like psychology a century ago was essentially philosophy yeah. or applied philosophy, and once it sort of anchored down the big questions it wanted to answer and had a few – mapped out methodologies for getting those answers, it became a discipline. And so that's part of the appeal of philosophy as well is the generalism. And that's probably who I am. Like I've tried to specialize, but it's, you know, I, it's just not in my nature. It's not my, uh, my temperament, I guess. Yeah. Well, I can relate. Um, Isaiah Berlin, who is a writer, uh, intellectual public speaker or, um, public intellectual, he, he talked about the hedgehog versus the fox, and I think the hedgehog was the generalist, and the uh, the fox was the specialist. They went deep, while the hedgehog went wide. And I've been ever since I I heard that you know that dichotomy. I've been trying to decide like what am I? Because I've gone deep mm-hmm. on some issues, but then I also am just like always on to the next idea, always on to the next thing. I'll read one paper and I'll, you know, get interested in something that's in the, um, we're excited where I'm like, Oh, I got to explore that idea. And I just keep bouncing and bouncing around. And, um, I've had this idea, uh, within the last couple of years through learning, you know, about pragmatism is that if you go deep on one subject. So in this case, for me, if I go deep in pragmatism, I start to learn a little bit of everything else. Uh, I've learned mm-hmm. more, you know, I've learned more in the last couple of years, um, learning about pragmatism. I've learned more about, uh, government, about politics, about psychology, about neurology, even mm-hmm. about like all these di- history, all these different things, world history, American history. I've learned all these different things from going deep on one subject, which, um, I think, if what you're going deep on uh, is rich enough um, that it can allow that. I mean, if you if you obsess yourself with the history of Christianity or theology, you can have the same effect because as you go back in theologians, you're going to start learning uh, German history and uh, all these, you know, you start learning about all these different things all the way back to, you know, the Middle Ages and to ancient times. It starts going back. And so I have this idea where, if you go deep enough on one subject, if it's rich enough that you can start to learn everything else. And so I've been kind of, um, you know, narrowly learning about pragmatism specifically. 
but I've been gen or um, justifying it because I'm learning all these different things through it. I, you know, I learned more about history uh, and, and you know, social studies and all these different things from learning pragmatism than I did in high school um, or even college. Mm -hmm. And so it's a really interesting idea. Do you, uh, can you relate to that? Yeah, I think, I think that's a good point. There's a lot to that perspective of um, a justification for specialization that it becomes your trying to think of the proper analogy for it, but if you, whatever you specialize in, as you do dig deeper and enables you to better attach other ideas and information and tools, skills, et cetera, to it. Um, yeah, I, I think there's a lot to that. And I think for me, as I'm trying to figure out, I was like, I am a generalist who tries because I know I'm a generalist that I have to force myself to specialize as much as possible. Mm. I think it's good for, for specialists who know that they're a specialist, that they have to push themselves to generalize out more. Mm. And so that that's the approach I take. And for me, I think the things I specialize in are um, more broadly is just reading and writing, um, perhaps research in general. And that, you know, maybe a specialty is communications, which that's what I do now. I, I work for a, a training and consulting firm and I'm the director of communications and marketing. So that is my specialty, but I, that specialty could fit into a lot of different ideological or ideas spaces. It doesn't have to be right now. It's uh, interpersonal skills and emotional intelligence, but I could apply that skill set to a lot of other places. So I think to your point, it enables me to better dig into those other areas that I don't really know right now. Yeah, I think that if you're a engaged, uh, committed, or intellectually curious person, whether you're a generalist or not, you're going to start going deep on things. Because I know other generalists, mm -hmm. uh, you know, people who have deconstructed their faith, uh, you know, when you start to deconstruct your faith, you start to look for other voices that are interesting that can kind of give you a way of thinking about things um, that is, you know, critical of your tradition because you're feeling that angst and you want voices or, or ideas to critique what you are, you know, what you're critiquing in your heart. Um, and so I know a lot of people who have started to deconstruct, but that doesn't automatically mean that you become an intellectually curious person and start learning all these different you know, things. I know a lot of people who are generalists in a narrow or in a, um, in a, um, uh, not narrow, in a shallow sense where they know, mm -hmm. like they know a slogan from all these different people. So it's like they have a wide range of names that they know and they know maybe a slogan from them. And that's kind of a shallow generalism that I don't think is exemplary <laughs> where, you know, mm -hmm. where I, as a generalist, I want to go deep on everyone and everything that sounds really bad, but I, I can't like, you just can't, there's not enough time. There's not enough energy. There's not enough hours in the day to mm. go as deep as you want. And so you sort of have to start paving a path. Um, uh, what paths have you started to pave, uh, recently? Like what's your thinking, where's your thinking leading to right now? What's, what's getting you going? Yeah. So the, in the spirit of trying to specialize one, and I think part of our interactions with each other has pushed me to really dig deeper beyond a shallow understanding of pragmatism to really get into what is the state of what are the conversations around pragmatism right now among scholars and rather than just relying heavily on the classical pragmatists or even the you know the big name neo-pragmatists like Rorty and Putnam 
And so trying to get deeper into that, um, you mentioned earlier communitarian thought. That's a newer territory for me that I want to dig deeper in because as of right now, I do see what looks like could be a lot of fruitful perspectives to solving a lot of our contemporary social issues. Uh, I do think a lot about psychology still in the sense of emotional or mental health. Um, not so much in regards to, for my own, you know, I'm in a very different place than I was a decade, decade and a half ago, but there's still those same types of questions of how do I become more emotionally resilient or how do we as individuals become more emotionally resilient? How do we um, better experience our emotional lives? Because one thing that I myself still wrestle with is, I guess you could say is maybe an emotional numbness is too strong of language, but I think a lot of people experience depression or have experienced it, it's more a matter of, I don't feel anything. So it's more of the, I'd rather feel something than nothing. Mm. And often what happens for people who are experiencing depression, because of something has been so painful, they've shut off feeling certain emotions. But the thing that happens when you shut off some emotions, you end up shutting off most of them. And so mm. for me, I'm still very interested in how do we re-engage our sort of emotional muscles. Mm. Um, and then, of course, I'm also very interested in education, which this intersects with Dewey in some ways, which I feel like um, speaking of bigness, the think a lot of the more traditional view of what a classroom or an education looks like, at least in the United States, is very stagnant and static. And actually from a lot of quote unquote progressive voices are actually reinforcing a very static or stagnant system. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, self-directed learning or unschooling our perspectives and becoming educated that I think are very uh, worthwhile. And so those are things that I'm also trying to get deeper and trying to talk with unschoolers and to look at the criticisms and sort of answer, well, why isn't this as big of a um, perspective in mainstream America as I would like it to be? And it is a growing growing perspective and a growing movement but those those are a handful of yeah. the things that i'm not going to be a specialized expert in but i will be knowledgeable enough to engage in the conversation and encourage others to consider those perspectives and yeah. what's in there i've seen uh you know i know from our own um our own exchanges that you're interested in unschooling what what is most interesting to you about unschooling and what is that all about? Is that just homeschooling? Is that um, undoing like the, the habits of like institutional schooling systems? Like how, I have not dug into it. I've only briefly mm -hmm. dipped my toe in the waters uh, with a couple different writings, but how would you, uh, how would you describe that, that idea? So I would say one of the best ways to understand it. Some people don't like the term unschooling because it sounds a bit more of a negative, but it's about self-directed learning. And the idea is that as children, as humans, we are natural learners. That, And this connects with Dewey's um, laboratory school in a way of I think their motto is learning by doing. And the idea is that when children are young, they play. Play is learning. And then when you go to school, learning becomes work. And then it's not as natural. You're not because you're not doing things that align with your own self-selected goals. So the idea is that in order for us as humans to genuinely learn something, there has to be a, a threshold that we cross in, of our sort of interest level. And the interest level is directly connected to a problem. And this is where it's a very pragmatic approach to education: is 
you have a problem such as maybe you're a kid and you're like, oh, I'm trying to to reach something that's on a higher shelf. How do I get there? And you experiment with ways to do that um, in a very rudimentary way. But the idea is your interest level matches whatever problems are most relevant to you. And then you get the resources, pull in the instructors, the tools that help you to become knowledgeable enough to address that problem. Yeah. And because it's so relevant to you, you're going to hold on to it. Whereas whether as a student or when I was a teacher, I would just throw things, ideas, information at kids at a very, very arbitrary way that, yeah, I can map out curriculum chronologically as a history teacher or thematically, but that's not going to necessarily align with the self-selected goals of my students and the problems that they specifically are trying to solve. So yeah, their problem they're trying to solve in the classroom is how do I do well in this test so I can get a good grade or how do I do well in this class so that my parents don't get mad at me? Like that's the problem. So they're going to learn just enough to achieve that. And so the idea is, you know, education isn't about knowledge acquisition. Um, For unschooling, it's, you know, it's the converse of that. It's the goal is to make adults who are happy successful and emotionally intelligent and the way you get there is by providing knowledge acquisition and the tools to achieve that yeah and most conventional classrooms really focus on knowledge acquisition everything else to that is secondary yeah were you a good student in school um i so i generally was a good student yeah i and i think for the most part later in my um my 12 year sentence I was a, a very good student early on or went to very good schools. They were all public schools, but they were all very good public schools. Um, whereas, you know, I think a lot of people aren't as fortunate to go to even good public schools and to have even more negative experiences in conventional classrooms. I generally had some pretty positive ones, but there is that part of me that wonders if I had the opportunity to s- – self-direct my education where I could spend actual time in my real community learning what it's like to be an adult with people of different ages and backgrounds to learn the things that I was really passionate about and enlist the people and resources to help me achieve that and solve those problems. I wonder if one, I would in general be a lot more successful um, as a human as well as maybe even more specialized in things that really align my natural talents and abilities. Yeah. Again, I don't know. Uh, I think Think, thinking about that too much is sort of a futile effort, what would have been, but it's one of those things that I think from the people I've met who have done self-directed learning or unschooling have been very impressive, well-spoken, knowledgeable. They know themselves. They're confident. They're very capable human beings. It's just the scary thing for most of us is you have to trust and put allow a lot of responsibility and autonomy on kids mm-hmm. to do the unschooling thing, and it's terrifying for a yeah. lot of people. Yeah, I asked that, you know, for that reason. I I was a horrible student in school. Like <laughs> and like I was the kid that had all the potential but just was not realizing it. Every single one of my teachers was like, "Look, you make comments in the class. I've talked to you. I know that you are a lot smarter than you let on. Like what the heck is going on?" And I was just like, "I just don't care mm-hmm. about school. This is boring." Like at the time, like in high school, I wanted to go into music. I was a drummer in a band in several bands, and like that was my life. I'm like, "I'm going to be a rock star." I don't need all this shit. Like, I don't need to go to college. Mm -hmm. I was anti-college, anti-education. I was just not for it at all. And now I spend all my free, uh, my free time reading philosophy books and academic books all because (laughs) I came across things that interest me 
uh, endlessly. Mm-hmm. And now I, I'm ravenous about it. And I can't stop. And, you know, much to my wife's chagrin, like she like she would much rather me not be as interested in learning as I am um, in academic and intellectual ideas and in philosophy. But in school, I was a I was pretty much a C student uh, for most of it. Some classes I really was engaged and loved it. And I maybe got an A or a B. But I was a very average student. I did not apply myself. I cut all the corners because I just was not interested and um, mm-hmm. I was part of a group. Um, there's a there's a podcast called Mixed Mental Arts. Uh, it used to be Brian Callen, the comedian's. Uh, well, it still is his podcast, but it went from the Brian Callen show to Mixed Mental Arts. And uh, his friend that he knew was Hunter Motts, and he has like an education background. And so they took on this turn where Brian Callen would just interview you know comedians and different you know celebrities and people like that, writers. Mm-hmm. And then Hunter Motts came on the show, and they started. Um, talking to uh, writers, intellectuals, scientists, uh, you know, John Haidt, Joe Henrik, different anthropologists mm-hmm. and people like that. And then they started a, uh, a community called Mixed Mental Arts, um, you know, a riff off of Mixed Mental or Mixed Martial Arts, where mm-hmm. you have to take a little bit of everything and whatever works. It's very much a pragmatic idea where, um, you know, martial arts. Uh, is MMA is very much a pragmatic or an example of pragmatism where you're taking what works from all, all these different traditions. Are you still there? We just had a glitch. Yeah, sorry, it just paused for a second. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, no, so I was part of this group where, you know, we were intentionally coming together and talking about, um, you know, our, our beliefs, but questioning our own beliefs and our own assumptions and stuff. And so I was part of this group and that's kind of where my podcast grew out of, um, from people, uh, encouraging me to start a podcast. A couple of us in the group started Mm -hmm. our own podcast and stuff. Um, and we were just talking about unschooling. I've learned so much more from following my interests and not having a, a, a structure. When I went to college, eventually I went, you know, to become, I went to Bible college to become a missionary. And I, you know, I was interested in all the things I was learning because I, I was interested in becoming a missionary and becoming a scholar or not mm-hmm. a scholar. Eventually I did want to become a scholar because I started to have doubts and I was like, I can't be a pastor and, and a missionary telling people to <laughs> accept Jesus into their heart when I don't even know if he's in mind. So I was like, I'll just learn, I'll do biblical studies. So then I started going down that route and then eventually, you know, as it happened, I didn't go into those routes, but, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought, but the idea of unschooling, um, uh, appeals to me in so many ways because of how much I've grown in the last five to six years, um, eight years, Mm -hmm. like ever since high school, I've grown so much more than, than the years where I I spent hundreds and hundreds of hours in a classroom. And that's such such a interesting idea to me. And I've been talking to my wife about, you know, these unschooling ideas. And when we first started dating, she, she was like the perfect student. She loved the systems. Mm -hmm. She, she benefited (laughs) and she thrived in the systems. Um, and so she was like, no, we're not going to do any weird things you want to do with our future kids (laughs) if, if we ever have them. Um, but my wife is an occupational therapist and so she works a lot with, uh, kids with autism and kids with special needs, um, who have Mm -hmm. sensory issues, which, um, uh, which would take too long to get into, but basically everyone has, you know, a range of sensory issues where you like certain sensory, uh, certain sensory things more than others. And if you are too, um, 
if you're too stimulated in one area, it can be distracting. Um, and she, ever since becoming a full time, um, occupational therapist, like now she's, she's open to Montessori. She's, she's open to this mm-hmm. kind of personalized education because she realized that everyone has personalized needs. Uh, you know, everyone just mm-hmm. does. And so I'm very much interested in unschooling in that way. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you had a comment there. It looked like you wanted to say something. Yeah, I think one of the the biggest appeals is the the fact that it's so personalized and it's not it removes it from this abstract place of here's this distant entity who's come up with the one way to approach education and you have to fit all these curriculum and all these standards. Here you go. Um, one of the really cool things about unschooling is very community focused as well, where yeah. you could be doing unschooling in rural Kentucky. And the problems you're going to face or you're facing as a youth in that community may be quite different than if you are an unschooling family in Seattle, Washington. And your your cultural values may even be different. And that's yeah. the other thing is where it adjusts to the cultural context that you live in and that you're likely to face. Mm-hmm. And so it resolves, I think, a lot of unresolvable debates that happen in discourse around traditional classrooms and traditional schooling systems. And it fits a lot of those personalized needs that, you know, you may not be able to articulate all the special needs you have, but if you are addressing problems that are relevant to you, you're going to stumble upon and find the tools that work for you and find the expert voices and the, the well-traveled mentors who can help you figure out those problems. And so Again, I, I can I can imagine um, you if you had maybe done unschooling. If you're a teenager, you exploring where you're at now, where it's like you started a podcast if they existed when you were a young teen, where you were bringing on friends and experts or whoever else to talk with them, and you're exploring the ideas and problems that are really relevant to you. Mm-hmm. And that's where what you find with a lot of unschooling kids is. They found something that was really exciting for them, and they just dove all in on it. Yeah. So there's a, an unschooling school that are often called Democratic Free Schools just north of where I live. Oh, yeah. Well, just north. It's like half an hour. But attending there, they so there was not an education or, excuse me, a theater program there at all. It's a small school, 100 kids. And so a few kids were really interested, and they learned how to build a stage. Wow. They started reading – drama um drama pieces and um plays and they started writing their own and learning how to direct and then they built they even built the stadium seating for this like all the skill sets that are needed to make that happen they learned them and they applied them and it was all driven by their passion and they made it happen and now they have a theater program going on there so it's just like there has to be a, a certain degree of passion for us to motivate us to tackle the challenges that we face and we have to be the ones to decide what we think are the challenges and problems worth addressing and so you and i may agree on a lot of what those problems and challenges are facing either for people around our age or even for the united states as a whole um or in our small communities but again it has to be we decide as a community what are the problems that we solve and truth coming back to that pragmatic perspective is going to be the resolution of a problem, as John Dewey says. So that's for me where a lot of these things that are kind of on the surface seem like scattered philosophies all connect. Yeah. 
yeah, William James was almost, you could say he was the product of unschooling. His dad oh, yeah. um, spent a lot of energy trying to educate uh, William James specifically uh, and his siblings, but specifically William James was kind of like the star in his eye. And so he, I think William James went to probably like, I think eight to 12 different schools. Like uh, mm-hmm. be- before he was 20, he went to all these different schools because his dad just kept taking him out and taking him to an, a new expert, a new tutor, a new place where he thought that that would benefit him. And so he kept going to all these different places early on in, in, in James's life. Um, he probably would have been considered a failure because he wanted to be a painter and then that didn't work out. Mm-hmm. He wanted to be uh, a, a doctor. He wanted to be a medical physician and he never became one. He, and then he started going into psychology and, you know, we know, we now know him as the father of American psychology. Um, but he didn't even like doing that. He was like, I want to explore philosophical issues. And so, in unschooling people especially parents are going to be like well what if it doesn't work like you have to allow them you have to allow the student or whoever it is to fail in certain things and and because you don't Mm. always know what you're interested in especially at a young age you don't know Mm. who you are but what i like about that that uh perspective is that you are given the opportunity to explore who you are and your interests and you start to learn from there and start to learn out of that process. Um, we're coming towards the end of our time. Um, Mm -hmm. I enjoyed this conversation and we're going to have more. This is just a introduction to, uh, Jeffrey Howard. (laughs) Um, uh, what what is new for you? What are you working on right now? Uh, and maybe what's, what's new for, uh, uh, Eradicus? What's, what's the next thing? Yeah, so we've got, and this is a, a problem I'm trying to resolve and figure out, but we are, have recently really branched out into publishing poetry and short stories. And the challenge I'm looking at with this is how does that fit into our a pragmatic approach to ideas that we take that, you know, what it's easier to take pragmatism as a way to look at ideas to further clarify our thinking on stuff but what what does that mean in the realm of of art such as short stories or poetry mm. um and it, you know that, that's something i don't really know what that looks like you know po- pragmatism doesn't often interface with uh, the disciplines of art yeah as far as i've seen and so you know that that's new territory for us but mostly we're including poetry and short story on Eradicus as a means of those are two mediums or media that are very useful for helping us to navigate the challenges of existence. And so they're not so much about pragmatism in the sense of clarifying ideas as much as they are pragmatic in that they are tools to help us resolve a lot of those challenges. And so trying to figure out what that looks like and building out that framework on the publication is an exciting challenge yeah uh well that's awesome i uh, i have a couple ideas or a couple papers from uh, especially richard rorty he has a couple of really interesting things to say about um the function or the pragmatic function of art and poetry uh specifically perfect that i think you'll like and uh so i'll send those over to you uh but uh thank you for coming on i know you have to go uh hike a mountain somewhere uh, <laughs> yes <laughs> So uh, thanks for coming on. You're definitely going to be a recurring guest um, on the show. I uh, am glad to introduce you to the audience, and I'm excited to keep doing this. Yeah, this is awesome. Thanks so much. Uh...